0: Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement. At socialists.nyc.
1: Hello, New York. This is Chris Carr, and you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Again, this is Chris Carr, he and pronouns, and a union steward with UAW Local 2710 and a member of the RPM Collective. But I'm not alone in the studio.
2: (laughs) Yo, it's good, New York? This is Jack Devine, here in pronouns, and I'm a member of uh, PSC CUNY, uh, where I'm a, a teacher, a researcher, and a writer on American history.
1: The workers of Barbicino Pizza in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, made New York history on July 26th as they voted unanimously to form a union with Workers United. Barbicino Workers United became New York's first unionized pizzeria, an incredible show of strength for the cause of labor in the deeply unorganized food service industry. Tonight, we hear from Alex and Mike, two workers involved in the organizing effort about their successful campaign at bar and the fight that's yet to come, not only in their own workplace, but across the restaurant industry. But first, the headlines with Caroline Van Zeitz.
0: Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, August 8th. In local news, the city and state governments are in a protracted legal battle over violations to New York City's right to shelter, as recent migrants to the city drove the shelter population over 100,000. Mayor Eric Adams declared it's not going to get any better. New York City drug courts have not released data on their effectiveness Going back seven years. Ed Mullins, the former head of Surgeons Benevolent Association, a major NYPD union, was sentenced to two years in prison for stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from the union. The new NYPD commissioner's twin brother was kicked off the force for abusive behavior in 2001 and later spent 30 days in jail for being a negligent landlord. A group of delivery workers in the city have filed wage theft complaints against DoorDash. A city program begun in 2020 to remove dangerous drivers from city streets has expired after seizing only 16 vehicles in three years, despite using 166 orders for seizure. Despite overwhelming support from voters and the Albany City Legislature, a recent law to increase police accountability has been ignored by the Albany Police Department. In elections news, the Brooklyn Democratic Party held its annual gala, attracting big-name elected officials from around the state, but offering no insight into how the party plans to combat recent Republican gains in the borough. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Caroline Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show.
1: Hey, you, Caroline. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com
2: uh, So yesterday, I spoke with Alex and Mike, uh, two workers at Barbancinos who were actively involved in the unionization campaign and this first part of the interview, we discussed uh, what kind of brought them into the labor movement, the uh, challenges that they faced at Barbancinos, what was kind of spurred them to uh, push and organize this union and what sort of challenges they faced when trying to organize this union, how they successfully did that. So uh, let's roll uh, the first part of the interview. Yo, what's good? We're here with Alex and Mike from uh, Barbancinos uh, Workers United. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thanks for having yeah, thanks. me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. It's good to be in unison when you're uh, in a union together. <laughs> uh, so I'll throw this uh, question to Alex first. But uh, what social forces propelled you into the labor movement?
3: I think, you know, so much of my life I think has been just about work, like everyone else, um, and particularly the service industry. I'm a career service industry worker. I had my first restaurant job when I was 15. I worked at a McDonald's. I've been a server. I've been a line cook. I've been a dishwasher. I've worked sauté. Then I, I think just being in this industry and, and making such low wages is, is really what what kind of radicalized me politically. And then after doing it for so long, eventually, um, kind of forming a union seemed like the, the best next step. Mike, what about
4: you? As for kind of like social forces that propelled it, I think the, the big thing is, you know, like we're in a political political economy where basically, you know, I think it's like one, a little bit more than 1% of people in the service industry are part of a union and it's the fastest growing industry. And we know from history that it's just, if you, you know, want to improve your own work conditions, the best way to do it is by looking after other people. So realizing that I've that I'm, you know, I've been here in this industry as well for like 12 years and I've never seen anything quite like the Starbucks Workers United. So I think that's the big thing for me is seeing that happen over the last few years has been really inspiring. Yeah.
3: I think, especially Starbucks in particular, you know, being like the campaign, kind of the most high profile service minister union of all time. You know, it's also such a youth campaign that kind of started in one store in Buffalo and then exploded. You know, I think. You know, once this really, this ball really started to get rolling and we had a, a proper OC, I think everyone really subscribed to this idea that if you can unionize one pizzeria, you can unionize a bunch of them. You know, that like we're, we're, what we're doing is building this kind of prototype, just like Starbucks is doing. And hopefully it's very scalable.
2: So you, you start off with the basic back that you're both workers and you're both service workers and you're in an industry. That unionization is limited in this country. Uh, that uh, worker, you're you're working under tough conditions. Uh, the pay is not what you want it to be. Uh, it's demanding. You have to deal. You know, sometimes you're dealing with customers. Sometimes you're not. You're uh, behind the scenes. But it, it's this kind of you're you're in this position where your your working conditions are not ideal. Uh, you have to sell your labor. Uh, to the owner, to the bosses, you have to listen to the bosses. You have to take orders, and this puts you in a position where you, now you're you're thinking, oh, like what can I do to actually improve myself? And you, uh, as you mentioned, you saw what was happening at uh, many Starbucks locations around the country with uh, Starbucks uh, Workers United. There's been some other examples of maybe a different kind of service work, like happening at uh, Trader Joe's, where we're seeing. Also, some unionization. So it's kind of this 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 dual fact of uh, one, the position you're in as a a worker and specifically service workers in this economy, and then kind of this this broader trend where we're starting to see uh, workers organize and fight back in this industry that has been that has has grown massively over recent years, and also has is not really been unionized. Until the efforts that we're seeing right now. But uh, what specifically happened at work that made you think that forming a union would improve your condition? So I'll throw this to Mike first and then Alex, you can uh, hop in. I think the big, like the big
4: catalyst was definitely health and safety concerns. And there are a lot of those when you work in a restaurant or a coffee shop. You know, people, people think that, you know, like, coal mining or like working on an oil rig is really dangerous and that's true but also like working with knives like for 10 hours a day is really dangerous serving food is something that you have to be really careful with for me definitely i had a a specific incident that kind of kicked off like serious discussions for unionizing with a flood that happened last summer in the basement of our restaurant where you know there was there was like a pipe leak that led to just both like water and sewage and chemicals all kind of mixing into a, like a, a really potent flood in the basement, which is, you know, that's a thing that happens regularly at restaurants where you're always like, you know, someone has to like, someone has to deal with that. Um, but when we kind of tried to advocate for our ability to basically leave after dealing with sewage, uh, we were told by the previous owner, we had to resume serving food, even though Myself and the other person involved in cleaning it up were, 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 were literally like, like filthy. And there were like exposed wires in the flood. It was, it was just a dangerous situation. And when we didn't want to keep serving food, the previous owner basically threatened to fire us. And we thought that was wrong. <laughs> and we immediately reached out to Ewok within like, within I would say 48 hours of doing that because we knew some people in the DSA. So. That kind of got us like to seriously start up our uh, start thinking about organizing. Um, but there are other smaller smaller issues than that, you know, like whether it's dull knives or not having cleaning products or having pests in the restaurant, you know, which is has been the case in every single restaurant job I've worked at. That yeah, definitely the flood last summer was was a big catalyst. Like if we can get fired for trying to basically make sure that we were clean and that the restaurant was safe, then something had to be done as a collective effort, I think.
2: Alex, do you have anything to add on to that? I think, you know,
3: that entire incident rem- reminds me almost of the pandemic too, where Mike is downstairs with Aiden, you know, two busters that are being forced to clean up this mess that is completely out of their job description and so dangerous, you know, with all these these, um, with all this pest removal, there's tons of chemicals downstairs, you know, insecticide and other cleaning products they are kind of in this kind of backwater. You know, there was toiletry products coming out of the, you know, coming out of the water and, and pieces of toilet paper. And I mean, it was it was absolutely revolting. But I, I think so much of this has to come down to the idea that, I mean, given to the, their own volition, owners and, and managers are the people who keep these restaurants safe and clean. That's the workers. And this is just a callous example of just a service industry problem. You know, it's not a Barbancino problem as much as it is just a, a service industry problem, where staff have to kind of make sure to keep these people safe because ownership, you know, if if kind of left their own devices, you know, always neglect safety concerns. They always neglect or kind of undermine the need of safety equipment. You know, it's always workers who are kind of being vocal that get these things. You know, another thing that happens is like when insecticide gets sprayed. You know, there there was no real policy about you know, kind of making sure that like all of the, the glasses and all of the plates were washed again. This is just something that the morning crew, the union backed morning crew does just to make sure people are safe. Um And that was another thing. I also think that to me, the most important thing is just the service industry is really hot blooded. You know, our, our pizza oven is 900 degrees. People work with knives all the time that, you know, after doing this for a decade, I mean, there's a lot of final stands in the kitchen. People get really hot and you know, the social conditions are so different and there's so much more arguing that people can just get fired like that. You know, like, I mean, just without any kind of warning that having something like a shop steward, something that you would have in like a union guild has been unbelievably influential in our campaign. And that's one of the biggest things that surprised me is that when you're talking to service industry workers where there's no precedence of unionization, the second they learn about something like a shop steward, you know, or wine garden rights, you know, the right to have a union rep present, I I think that was incredibly galvanizing and and really was something that influenced a lot of people to kind of become pro-union and and want a union, too. Because I I think there's no industry better for a shop steward than the service industry, because it's just it's the whole Hell's Kitchen thing, the whole kind of like Gordon Ramsay, you know, like kind of like outbursts that really, really do happen. And you need and you need safety protections and, and disciplinary protections um, in jobs like this, especially for people who work there for a really long time.
4: Yeah, also uh, it, it, it's kind of interesting that like b- these are like the two things that brought us a lot of momentum as we were starting to organize, particularly with the, with the back of house. And since we won and um, even before we've begun contract negotiations, those are the two things we're already doing as a union. Like already we've kind of met with owners uh, regarding disciplinary things and retraining and giving people who, you know, work there a fair chance, not just being arbitrarily let go. And also our first plan, even before we sit down and start negotiating is to uh, sort of begin a worker led uh, um, investigative committee. You almost like into that basically health and safety measures in the restaurant and just kind of, kind of just taking power already and talking about how we can make a cleaner, safer, better environment for the workers.
3: I I also just want to be clear that the catalyst moment that happened um, with this massive sewage flood, this was under a previous owner as well. And we've since gotten new ownership. And that was a a kind of um, a strategic value to us because we knew that the second you know, new owners came in, they would be over leveraged and that would be a great time to start unionizing. Um to kind of give them a fair shake. They weren't the people who who um kind of threatened workers on that night, but they've been kind of our um you know, they they've they've had the the majority of our organizing um so far. So
2: you have this very disgusting and dangerous inciting incident that is representative of long-term trends at, uh, at chinos at the service industry industry in general where you're working under uh dangerous and uh unhealthy conditions uh, as you mentioned someone could get uh burned uh with a hot plate or in this uh stove uh you have uh, knives all around so uh, people are at risk uh, and also uh, dealing with pests and uh, in this instance, a flood where you have uh potentially uh, chemicals and sewage all altogether in a place where people are serving food and people are eating food. so this is also something that is putting the people who are at the restaurant, not just the workers, at risk, and kind of creates a situation where instead of uh, responding it and considering the the workers uh, as the humans as they are with dignity the workers are treated with disrespect and uh ultimately threatened to be fired kind of the insecure employment that exists in the industry when you don't have a union uh so it's kind of all these factors combined together to really roll into think oh what what can we do to prevent something like this from happening in this way again and forming a union having uh, collective power at the workplace as you're describing this sort of like having like a shop steward, someone who can kind uh, of represent you and deal with these sort of situations and have standards set within the workplace, so it is safer, cleaner, and and like the, the it's just it's a clear fact that unionized workplaces, uh, whether that's a restaurant, a school, a construction site, a factory, are safer, are healthier, have better conditions and workplaces that are uh, not unionized. So I think that, that makes a lot of sense, both this concerns over uh, uh, kind of the health and standards within the workplace, as well as job security being a motivating factor. And so you mentioned that there's kind of been uh, multiple owners, So but you've been dealing mostly with this new ownership. So how did ownership respond to your unionization effort, and what strategies did you utilize to build a working-class organization. I'll throw that uh, to you, Alex. I think they're terrified.
3: You know, um, we knew when they were coming in and we had organized a petition to just have a meeting with ownership. You know, it wasn't a, a letter of requesting union recognition, but it was just this kind of ominous petition that had something like 75% of the staff signed, a total supermajority. They used their names, and it was just a friendly olive branch requesting a meeting. And the second they saw that, and we marched on them, and we hand-delivered this letter, even though it was incredibly affable, I think they kind of knew something was up. And at that point, you know, we weren't using the U word, but we were acting as a union. And all of the committed members of the organizing committee wanted a union, and they wanted things. And I, and I, I think some of the kind of more distant employees were still kind of um, being radicalized and, and kind of learning about these things. But um, we wanted to... To really, you know, be as, as diplomatic as first as possible. And we met with ownership. We asked for a tipped $15 an hour rate, um, $15 an hour wage for front of the house workers, your servers, your bartenders, your hosts, your busters, and then a floor of $25 an hour for back of the house workers, you know, your, your cooks. And then we then led, we read testimonies from staff about what a living wage would mean to you. Um, we also asked for input in our company sexual harassment policy. And then we asked for a a clearly written three strike policy. Um, you know, we're all at will employees at at Barbancino and and, and most service industry workers are. So we wanted some kind of clearly described, you know, termination policy. And then they didn't give us any feedback from that meeting. And then we met with them a month and a half later and they told us no. We're not going to give you a raise. We're not going to let you have any input in the sexual harassment policy. And then the same day they offered, they forced us to sign a new employee handbook um, under the threat of termination. And then after that, we, we were kind of fully prepared that, you know, we, we, we just had to find the right union and, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do this as an independent union. None of us had enough experience. And we really wanted to be like the Starbucks campaign, and then we found Workers United, and it was a, a great, a great um,
4: relationship right from the beginning.
2: Mike, do you have anything to add?
4: Yeah, and then I think um, we've definitely tried to have an uh, like a public facing, like friendly relationship with the owners, and although there have been some hiccups along the way, for the most part, that's worked out. A lot of that was under the guidance of having uh, met with workers United and gotten their support, uh, particularly our legal assist, like assistance has helped us kind of maintain decorum in our interactions with them. We handed them like a fair elections procedures document for them to sign. Um, Fair election principles. Sorry. Fair election principles. Yeah. And, you know, it's basically just like, you know, (laughs) do your best not to break the law <laughs> as we're, as we're doing this campaign and they didn't sign it. But for the most part, they've, you know, tried as best as they can to follow the principles. And in return, we haven't been attacking or, con- or condemning them publicly. Um, Cause they don't necessarily deserve that as long as we can work together. We'll see where that goes in the future. But, you know, aside from an initial email where they, they kind of explained, yeah, like we don't, we don't, Necessarily think, you know, we we can improve this workplace without you guys unionizing. Please don't do this. That was kind of the extent of it. They haven't, you know, fired any of us uh, explicitly for unionizing. They might get really frustrated with us sometimes, but they don't. You know, they, they've they've responded better than you know uh, Starbucks has. <laughs> I would say definitely. And,
3: and 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 the Starbucks campaign, I also thought was was kind of such an interesting kind of backdrop for our campaign too. Because when you have a first organizing conversation with a worker, the first thing they're going to say is, "What if they close the restaurant down?" Which is what Starbucks does everywhere. You know, Starbucks is breaking labor laws, and you know, and, and particularly ones that I think service industry workers can relate to. You know, there's a union effort, and they just shut the entire store down, or they or they kind of make a a trumped up charge against one of their organizing committee leaders and then they get terminated. And um, so we didn't have to have to deal with that. And and so far um, we've had a pretty agreeable relationship and um, hopefully that continues on the contract negotiations.
4: Yeah. I think a a really important thing is that we're trying to relay to the ownership, um, not necessarily in so many words, but like, we know you're not Starbucks and you can't just shut this place down. Like you need this place and we also need this place and we're not trying to burn it down, you know, like trying to create a workplace for us. And maybe they don't necessarily agree with that, but I think a big, you know, our, our goal is to kind of get them to come around on that. And if not, then we'll do, <laughs> we'll do what we have to do.
3: I, I also want to add to that. Like, you know, I mean, I think ownership reacts generally in just kind of anxiety and like, like absolute fear that there's no unions in this industry. There's no playbook that like when a worker revokes wine garden rights, you know, and they request a union rep present like that causes like, like an incredible calamity. You know, I remember like when we actually hand delivered that petition, the um, one of the managers at Barb and didn't speak to me for like five days. And I'm working, you know, right next to them, but they were just so afraid and they knew I was, you know, one of the, one of the union leaders and they were just, they don't know how to respond to this. And it creates so much, I think kind of useful leverage as well that, you know, we won unanimously and that sends an incredible message. And I I think um, workers united is a particularly legalistic union, you know, that has a lot of really strong legal resources. So it's, it's a perfect match for our campaign where because there are so few unions. You know, our owners who are kind of an aspiring corporate restaurant group, um, you know, really talk through their lawyers, sometimes directly kind of communicating to then our attorneys who then communicate to us. So having this kind of really strong, like very official, um, kind of large affiliate labor union has been kind of paramount in this campaign, especially because it's just so new and there really is no playbook for organizing these standalone restaurants.
2: So the fact that. You're in a situation where you're not dealing with a massive corporation like Starbucks or Amazon that can, uh, you know, move workplaces around, that can shut down stores, that you're dealing with small business owners that have a more personal investment within Barbancinos, don't want to see it closed. And so you're trying to work, uh, with them rather than, uh, openly antagonize. It doesn't mean that there aren't, there isn't tension. There's going to be tension between, labor, and capital uh, in a workplace, especially during a unionization effort and during contract negotiations, but you're holding back from this kind of openly condemning stance and trying to work with them as best you can. So that's one uh, part of the strategy. And the other side was that you brought people together and you had people express their grievances, come together on petitions, work to gradually build the union Make it function as a as a organized workplace before the, the election actually took place. So taking those steps, so not just say like hoping for the best, but actually working towards collective power, demonstrating that collective power, and seeing what you could get from that before the election. So you have this kind of multi uh, pronged strategy uh, in order to to win this unionization campaign. And now next up is your first uh, negotiated union contracts.
1: You're listening to Revolutions per Minute on listener sponsor WBI and NYC broadcasting at ninety nine point five FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. You've been listening to our interview with Mike and Alex from Barbuccino Workers United on their successful union fight, making Barbacino the first unionized pizza shop in New York. These truly are exciting times for labor in this country, and we at Revolutions per Minute have been there every step of the way. Whether they be workers celebrating their union victory, like, like what we have here at Barbaccino or walking the picket line, like what we're seeing now from the Writers Guild of America and, and SAGAFRA, or reforming their own unions like the Teamsters for a Democratic Union or Reform, UFCW, or trying to organize a union for the first time, like at Trader Joe's, Revolutions for Minute for almost 200 episodes has been there to put the perspectives of workers and organizers first who are trying to snatch the levers of power away from the bosses and put them in the hands of the working class of New York and across the world. If this kind of media speaks to you, if you believe in the mission that we do here at Revolutions Per Minute, if you believe that the best kind of pizza is unionized pizza, even if it has pineapples on it, then please don't hesitate to pick up the phone to give to the station. Please call. 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. It would be an understatement to say that every dollar counts because the station needs every bit of it. If it's going to afford soaring New York rent prices, if we're going to pay our bills, if we're going to maintain all of our equipment and transmitters and all the stuff that goes into running a radio station, and also, of course, pay our incredible staff. If you don't like calling people, then that's all right, too. You can go online to WBAI.org and follow, the links and follow the links to send your donation. We know times are hard for everyone, but if you are in a position to give monthly, then please join us to be a WBAI buddy. Being a WBAI buddy not only means you'll be sustaining our operations here at the station or get cool perks like tote bags or other merch, but also if your donation exceeds $25, you become a voting member in WBAI, joining the station as a citizen in our radio democracy. And plus, if enough of you join, then that means fewer fundraising drives like this, and you get more of your favorite content. So in the end, it's a win for everyone. So to give to the station, please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go to WBAI.org. And tell them Revolutions Per Minute sent you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Chris, for a great pitch. And now we're going to move on to the second part of our interview with Alex and Mike from Barbancino Workers United, where we discuss their demands and their first union negotiated contract, how they're uh, working to build a movement of service workers in the food industry and beyond across New York and the whole country, and how. Uh, EWOC played a critical role in helping them build a working class organization. So let's roll uh, that second half of the interview. So what are your demands for your first uh, union contract? And I'll throw that to Mike first. Like Alex said, we're bringing back
4: everything that we talked about with our first like petition meeting with them um, before we kind of went public with the union. We want minimum wage. Uh, plus tips for the front of house employees. You know, right now we're getting 10 an hour and we want a floor of 25 for dishwashers and people in the kitchen. We also want to relitigate the um, employee handbook at will employment. We want like a contract to guarantee that people will be treated fairly, of course. And we want input in the sexual harassment policy because it's that's rampant in the industry and not even particularly at Barbancino. Just anywhere there's a bar, it's it's you know, or there's like alcohol being served. It's likely that customers are going to sexually harass people. You know, every like pretty much every every woman who works there has, has experienced it. And we want definitely employee oversight into health and safety. We, we want fair and legally like legal scheduling, um, which is not a thing we currently have a logical a day or two in advance. We'd also like, like kind of, um, creative input into the menu and to have a voice in like cocktail. We've sent out a, a like a negotiation survey to, to the entire staff. And so we're still hearing responses back from people like, uh, other other, other like, additional things they want to hear, things that are high or low on their priority list. And so that's kind of exciting and interesting too, is to just like, get this data real time from people who necessarily don't necessarily go to meetings all the time, people who we've had conversations on the shop floor with, but it's difficult to meet with some people outside of work. The the survey is really awesome and we're still getting responses from it.
2: Alex, oh, so you got anything to add? I think
4: with the,
3: you know, I mean, the, this work, people get hurt a lot, you know, and it's incredibly physical on their body. I, I tore my ACL in January, um, and I just had to kind of do physical therapy and then continue working here. And, I mean, every worker at Barbicino has some kind of injury, especially people who have been in industry for a really long time. You know, there's lots of uh, really heavy lifting, and you're constantly on your feet. You know, um, maybe at most you like an ergonomic mat, um, and people work in this industry for 30, 40 years that, you know, um, some kind of health care is popular, and the best way to negotiate it, whether it's actually having primary care, um, and, and a plan, um, kind of subsidized by Barbancino or also there's all kinds of um, employee help services that through like HR companies, you know, um, you know, restaurateurs can pay like a flat fee to like a clinic in the city. Um, and then for paying like a, a fine sum, like every Barbancino employee can get, you know, you know, talk therapy once a week or something like that, you know, or maybe like, you know, they could get, you know, some kind of drug counseling, you know, substance abuse is also rampant in the industry that there are kind of specific things that, you know, we can negotiate around too, that I think are, are kind of, um, maybe even more malleable financially, you know, that there are certain things that maybe, um, you know, we could get in service industry workers, um, for healthcare. I also wanted to, to push back on, on the idea of kind of small businesses in New York City that, I mean, these are restaurateurs. I mean, you can't just buy a large restaurant in Brooklyn without having a lot of capital. You know, that there's this myth that's kind of followed our campaign about the Ma and Pa restaurant and these kind of like socialist pizza workers who have like no idea about how, you know, how anything, how much anything costs and, you know, to, to, to rent and to run one of these businesses costs millions and millions of dollars. And these are huge businesses. And there's, you know, almost like an entire cuisine of these high margin restaurants in New York city, like pizza or tacos or, or or, or falafel. And, and there's a real consolidation of wealth that's happening, which I think is really interesting with our campaign that I always like to ask people to name their, their top three favorite restaurants. And I guarantee at least one of those restaurants is owned by a corporate restaurant group. And that wealth is really being centralized. And, you know, maybe, maybe, Maybe in five years there's a second Barboncino location. Maybe Barbonino gets bought by, you know, a another restaurant group, you know, but I I I think so much of this idea that even though we are a standalone pizzeria, um, that that, that really is an exception in New York City, especially with bars. You know, um you could say the same thing about name your your three favorite bars in New York City. I guarantee one of them is owned by some kind of hospitality group.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. That there is, like, even if it may look like on the surface is a small business, it could it could be part of a much larger enterprise, a big group of capital uh, behind it. And so there's there's this concentration of capital within the uh, the service industry as well. It's not just the big name corporations where it's happening, but it's it's restaurants, it's bars. So that uh, is important to note, and I think. Uh, what you're both talking about here is that you have these sort of bread-and-butter demands around wages, health care, but you're also asking for more. You're asking for dignity and respect in the workplace, whether that's uh, dealing with sexual harassment and wanting to have a policy so people don't have to be confronted with that sort of violence uh, in the workplace, or is it's having kind of input into the creative process of running the restaurant itself uh, with the menu and with uh, the drink choices. And you're doing this in a democratic way by having the survey and having your members contribute to what they want in negotiations rather than kind of a sort of top-down uh, negotiations. So how can your successful unionization effort inspire other restaurant workers in New York and beyond? And Alex, I'll throw that to you first. I think this is our mission,
3: you know, that it- you know, we're the first unionized pizzeria, but we're not the last. And, and so much of this is just becoming a model. And we, we would love to, to kind of work really closely with Ewok. And we've already been contacted by so many other restaurants who are underground in kind of very similar positions to us. You know, these are restaurants whose ownership um, has no idea that there's an organizing committee meeting every week kind of, um, you know, talking about their own campaigns and their own demands. Um, we've helped campaigns that are completely underground, um, that I think so much of, I, I think that the political ambition of, you know, Barbancino's union effort is that if we can win the contract, that proves that all of this works, that you really can unionize an unconventional workplace. And, and once you do it, it makes so much more sense than being in an ununionized workplace that I, I, I really think at the absolute essence of this, it's just that this is something that's scalable and. You know, if you can unionize one of these businesses, like, you know, we're, we, we, we 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 since we've started this project and we've kind of become one of the the more kind of recognizable um, restaurant campaigns in New York, we've met so many people with completely different social conditions. You know, maybe their their kitchen has more Spanish speakers and and different terms. But at the end of the day, like, I mean. Restaurants have these incredible social conditions where our restaurant literally has like an open kitchen. You know, workers talk to each other so much. Coincidentally, so many of the people who work at Barbancino are great friends with each other that like, I mean, that's such a great advantage. People always talk about how high the turnover is and, and and sometimes how far people will commute and how low the wages are that it's difficult to build a strong union coalition. But like, it's just so much more extroverted that you're really just having these really special organizing conversations all the time. You know, when when we started started this, you know, know, we were always told to have organizing conversations, but it just seems like all of this happens just intuitively with the kind of way that, you know, you speak to each other while you're working at a restaurant. And I I think what's also crazy is, like, if you work in, like, an office, you have to really speak a, a very kind of particular and muted way, And you have to say things like, let's circle back at a restaurant, you know, especially if like the managers aren't looking, you can just be radical. I I think we really hope that once we win this contract, that becomes like the statement in the same way that the Starbucks campaign kind of showed all these other restaurants that they could do it. Like, I, I think once we unionize and win our contract, other restaurants will do it and they'll do it much faster than we did it.
2: Mike, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, but at
4: the same time, um, I, I think, you know, the goal should be to organize all these other places and do it a little bit faster than we did it. But a message I would broadcast is also to not rush it. We've seen, um, a few failures, I think of restaurant organizing efforts that happened a lot of the time. I think at least part of it had to do with moving too quickly. And like Alex said, like a lot of the success of our union came from the fact that we already had like I, I had been working there for a long time before these organizing conversations started, and I had built up like interpersonal relationships and trust with people, so that they would be willing to kind of take a risk with me and my my uh, our, our, our comrades, you know. And I would definitely say, like, they they should <laughs> look into Ewok because Ewok was really essential to our planning, uh, like our our grand strategy of. Building up this massive network of support with the workers before you even start thinking about what what union you want to join. Also, like like Alex said, like we had particular advantages at Barbancino that made it a bit easier than a lot of other restaurants, particularly bars, I think. And so, as we've been uh, meeting with other restaurants that are interested in organizing, we've been taking it very seriously i i i've I've been approaching it with a great deal of caution because they have issues that we don't have necessarily uh even though there's a lot of overlap probably in every single restaurant that needs to organize, which is all of them we're also just learning a lot from meeting with these people and so i would I would love for them to teach us uh what kind of things different places needs need um places where language gaps uh, language barriers are a problem um, are gonna be a lot harder and that should be I think that should probably be even slower than our uni- uni- union effort I think if we can do it if a couple bus boys can do it you know I think I, I think anywhere can do it and I think they have to
3: yeah I and, and, and I also think you know what's 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 so great about about this union effort too is I, I think so many young people, you know, kind of feel very alienated. You know, they're kind of maybe they're they never went to college, or they're kind of downwardly mobile college grads, or you know, they've just been making minimum wage their entire life, and they kind of distance themselves from like the electoral process. But joining a union has, I think, created this like po- like emotional and political relationship to the world that I, I think like we just left an organizing committee meeting. And the people at that meeting go to a Monday meeting at 1.30 every single week, and they've been doing it for a year and a half because they go to these meetings and they can make decisions that really do change their lives. And I, I think it's so critical that you know when when these when these talks start happening, you know that they're they're kind of democratic and and honest and and really just I, I think if you if you do them and people really start to come i I think another great benefit is people really do just fall in love with these unions that like like you know it's you know it's so tough to find a good job in this industry and then you know also you you know people are just blackpilled and they they want to be a part of something and i think the union is such a great political project for so many young people
4: no i i definitely would like to echo that um The the Barbecino Workers United has given me like a sense of hope and purpose just on on my own individual level. And I think a lot of other people in our union feel that same way. And I I, I guess I'd want other people to know that, you know, it feels it feels really good. It does. It
3: it really does. And like I remember right when we started organizing, um, we used to go to this like activist space on Dean and Franklin Street in Brooklyn. And it was one of our first big meetings ever. And it was on a Monday, like, a, like a, a, a Monday or maybe a Tuesday. And it was at like noon. I remember walking out of that meeting for the first time, having this like great face to face meeting with all my coworkers. And I just had this epiphany that, oh, my God, we're not at work, but we're like talking about work and like the most radical confrontational and like like socially unacceptable ways possible. And it really is completely revelatory.
2: Yeah, I absolutely uh, share that sentiment. As a union member myself, I always kind of feel this empowerment in the workplace and this sort of solidarity with my fellow members that it would be m- much harder to push through the day without. And so I think it kind of, it, the solidarity has to be experienced, be believed in a certain sense and to be forming a union or be part of a union really kind of, it does give you a different sense of purpose and it kind of empowers that it gives you this collective power that shapes you as an individual. And what what's so encouraging about uh, what happened uh, with Barbancino's is, uh, and what we're seeing at Starbucks and Trader Joe's and uh, other workplaces around the country is that we can potentially see a surge in an industry where unions have been lacking for so long. And as you already mentioned, is such a critical and growing part of the economy. The service industry is huge. It's uh, the more people work in service than anything else, the conditions are tough, the, the pay is not great. And so if we can see the sort of shift that we saw in major industrial workplaces in the 30s whether it was uh, car factories uh, or steel plants or the the a major unionization wave it shifted the balance of forces, the balance of power in this country, if we can kind of see that, uh, happen again. And, and this is a very encouraging sign that we're s- starting to see this in an industry where, uh, unions have been kept out of for so long, but now workers are organizing and fighting back. So I just want to thank you both so much, uh, for sharing uh, your story with us at, on RPM.
4: Thank, thank you. I we you really appreciate up. it. I
3: also, I also want to add one thing just, I, I don't know if it would, if it would fit in the, in the interview, but just kind of what you is broadly. People who don't know, um, EWOC is the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee. They're a, a volunteer run organization that helps um, non unionized businesses of all kinds kind of organize to some capacity, whether it's a single shoot campaign or an election and a contract. Um, and it's an incredibly successful, kind of highly dedicated um, group of like left wing staff organizers, typically. Or other kind of um, successful organizers who then work very closely with these campaigns so our ewoker rep Andrew was a staff organizer of CWA the communication workers of America we were completely inexperienced and we literally filled out the form on their website and then Andrew the staff organizer for more than a year you know would be with us every single week in person you know and he was our, our counsel and this incredible source of advice that also let us build up our own strengths you know he wasn't I mean, sometimes, you know, you could go up to an Ewok rep and they could do things like canvassing for your union. But I mean, a big philosophy I think of Ewok is training these these union leaders to then kind of run very self-sufficient organizations that I just can't stress enough that I mean you won't be able to do this alone. You're gonna need to develop an organizing committee in your workplace. And I I really just can't stress enough how how great Ewok is. They're never gonna pressure you to join a certain union. Um they're gonna be incredibly available. Um, there's a ton of different volunteers who have very different skill sets, you know, whether it's a language barrier or, or a specific industry, um, these are people that, that can really change your life. So I, I just can't stress enough that, um, you should reach out to an Ewok rep if you're in a similar position and thinking about organizing.
4: Yeah. And big shout out to Andrew. He's a, he's a paragon of labor and solidarity. We love Andrew. We love Andrew.
2: Well, thank you for that great breakdown of EWOC, which is a collaborative effort between DSA and the United Electrical Workers. They're doing some really great work and it's uh, incredible to see uh, what their, your combined efforts uh, were able to do at Barbancino's. And hopefully we start to see uh, that uh, more and more throughout the city and all across the country, uh, workers organizing to fight uh, to improve their conditions for and for a better future. So I just want to thank you both so much again uh, for joining us on uh, Revolutions Per Minute.
3: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you in solidarity. <laughs> solidarity forever. Solidarity. So, well, I, I guess we can close out that interview. Yeah, great, great job, Jack. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess we're, we're reaching near the near the tail end of the show. Um, I'm not sure if we, if we wanted to open up the phone lines. Uh, so, if, if if anyone listening out there in the airways has a, has a quick comment. Or, 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 a question to ask Jack, Jack or I about, about the topic of the show, about, about Ewok, or, or about the, uh, Workers United and their campaign, uh, give us a call at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Yeah, so, uh, I, I guess in the meantime, uh, if, uh, if we don't have anyone else, uh, who wants to chime in, I, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic interview. I feel like there's just so much to sort of pull from that. Uh, I think one part that was very interesting was uh, oh, either Alex or, or Mike mentioned Hell's Kitchen, and and I think it's very interesting because like so much of like the the kitchen and the food service uh, industry has been so sensationalized, if it, like through these reality TV shows like Hell's Kitchen or Kitchen Nightmares, or even in drama like the you know, Hulu's The Bear, and, and I think. And believe me shows you kind of see this like this very like hectic, like very like very like tense environment that often these workers are are put through. Like where and and it's often yeah, often very tense, very high turnover rate, you know, there's you know sharp objects, there's potentially uh you know of potentially like chemicals and like and like not cooked food food like everywhere and it's like these like very like like often dangerous environments that the, that these workers have to put through, and 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 as you know, Alex and Mike mentioned, a lot of abuse comes with that environment as well, uh, from 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 managers who who may not have the best interests of of the worker or or the customer uh, in mind, and and I feel like these efforts by Barpincino and, and hopefully elsewhere can really get the ball rolling in trying to transform what has been historically a deeply uh, unorganized and often very cutthroat and brutal industry.
2: Yeah, I was glad that they both brought that up, that a restaurant it can be a dangerous place to work. I think most people think of the dangerous workplace and they think uh, something like a construction site where you could uh, fall off a, a building that's in the midst of construction. Construction, or maybe driving around a cab driver getting in a car accident or a, a UPS driver, or other truck drivers, the danger of being on the road. Uh, these are uh, in a factory uh, where you get your hands burned uh, like in the old uh, process of making steel. But I think uh, the restaurant is also a dangerous workplace and that's important to note that. And, and beyond that, I think what makes this such a fascinating story is that uh, it's the type of workplace where People go in and experience it all the time. Uh, when you're talking about a factory, the people who uh, are in the factory, are the people who work there, the customers are not in the factory itself. So a union factory is not a customer-facing factory. But oh, do we have a call? Sorry, I, I, thought, so. I, I thought I heard. I thought I heard <laughs> an interruption, but uh, the. Uh, but uh, almost like how uh, students and uh, parents deal with teachers in that sort of workplace. Service workers are constantly encountering people outside of the workplace. It's a place that we see in. We don't get into the kitchen, so we don't see the maybe the more dangerous aspects of it. But people interact with service workers all the time. So a sort of uh, campaign... That, that factors that in that within the community can be absolutely crucial for unionization effort, or if we see a strike effort, but I, we're running out of time here, Chris, so I want to give you the chance uh, for the last uh, comment.
1: Uh, I think the last thing that came to mind, like, I think near the tail end is that, you know, like through this act of, of changing the world and changing a workplace, we, we change ourselves and, and that, and that solidarity and that, and that purpose in, in, in each other and, and in the actions of solidarity, uh, I I think are, 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 I think are sort of self transforming. And, and I I think that shows the power of, of, of labor, not only to shape the world, but to shape ourselves as well.
2: All right. Well, it looks like we're uh, hitting uh, 7.55, so it's time to wrap up the show. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute. I'm listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Connect with us after the show. You can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we're going to keep you, continue to keep you updated. With all the unionization efforts, the rank-and-file struggles, the strikes that we see all across the country as the labor movement attempts to
1: exert its power. I'm Chris, and thank you, New York.